Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Romans. It's a joke. Uh, I, I know, that's the funniest thing. I did contemplate teaching the uh, lesson that I taught on Monday. Monday I taught four times at uh, elementary school, teaching them why they should be engineers. It involved paper airplanes, so maybe sometime in the future we may be using paper airplanes in class. We began the book of Romans with the introduction and talking about verse 17 being the key verse or one of the key verses in the book. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then after that, we got distracted for about six weeks. As we went through the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and half of chapter 3, where Paul goes to great lengths to convince us that we are all guilty. But wait a minute. I didn't know the truth about God. Yes, you did. You knew the truth and you suppressed the truth because you wanted to worship the created thing rather than the creator. Wait, but those people over there are worse than I am. It doesn't matter. You're bad enough. <laughs> but wait, we're good Jews. We have the law that was given to us by God. Yes, you have it, but you didn't keep it. Having it does you no good if you don't keep it. But what about us? We're Gentiles. We didn't even have it. Yes, but sometimes you do the things that it says you ought to do, and sometimes you don't do them, yet you know that you ought to do them, and you're demonstrating that the law of God is written on your heart. You can suppress it, you can change it, you can deny it, but it is written on your heart. And we ended last week with chapter 3 where it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. In order to understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news, the reality that all of us are lost. This passage has used the word law in a couple of different ways. It has used the word law to talk about the Ten Commandments as delivered by God to Moses on the mountain to the nation of Israel, the written law. It has used the word law to talk about the law written on man's hearts, the fact that we were all created with an understanding of what was right and wrong. We could broaden that definition because... We in our fallen nature take that which is written on our hearts and corrupt it. And we come up with hundreds, thousands of different laws that we want to try to fulfill in order to be right with God. We take the law and in our sinful nature we corrupt the law and we come up with our list. And if I can keep my list, I'm in. Because we know that we're not right, for, right with God. So we ended up in verse 20 last week. For by works of the law, 
pick any definition you want of the law. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, God's, sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What the law has done for us is shine a spotlight on the fact that we are not righteous before God. If you wanted to argue that the whole purpose of the scripture is to explain to us how to be right with God, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that following an external standard isn't going to do it for us. I mean, it said over in the middle of chapter 2, if you did the law, you would be declared righteous. But you're not going to do it. You can't keep it. You won't keep it. So, if, if we are going to be saved, there has to be another way. Verse 21. Now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I will argue that this is not plan B. This was always plan A. Plan B was to convince you that you couldn't do it on your own. Plan A was God working to save lost humanity. And he did it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is going to talk about. This is the pivot that the whole book turns on. We had the bad news. Now we're going to have the good news. And here it is. And then the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter are going to talk about different aspects of this. What does it mean that we are justified by faith. And then chapter 8 is just this great and wonderful passage about what we get because of that. And then on to chapter 12 where we talk about, okay, what do we do about this? You notice I skipped 9, 10, 11. We'll get there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Somehow, someway, there's got to be a righteousness that doesn't involve me keeping the law. Because we just showed in the last six lessons that we couldn't do it. So if I'm going to be made righteous, somebody has to do it for me. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This isn't something new that was made up by Paul in this passage. Go back to the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see passages where God is alluding to the fact 
that he is going to take care of things. I mean, just picking some random events, okay? Adam and Eve. What happened to Adam and Eve? Created, innocent, put in the garden. They had one thing they weren't supposed to do. They did it. And what did God do? He kicked them out of the garden. That's true. But he also killed an animal and made a covering for them. It's an interesting discussion because it said before that, before they had eaten of the fruit, that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. There is some speculation that they kind of glowed with the same glow that God has, that glory. And all that went away. And after they ate of the fruit, they realized they were sinners and they acknowledged the fact that they were naked. God killed an animal and made a covering for them. Moving on to their children, Cain and Abel. They presented a sacrifice to God. What did Cain bring? Come on, this is easy. Hmm? Grain. He was a farmer. He cut some crops and brought it. And God wasn't that impressed. His brother killed an animal, shed the blood, and brought that as a sacrifice. And his offering was accepted. It is interesting because people speculate that God must have explained beforehand the importance of the shedding of blood. Otherwise, this doesn't make any sense. Well, that's probably true. I guess I always viewed it, this was the training class. This was the time where God said, this is an acceptable sacrifice. Cain, you want to be right with God? Go find you some blood. Now, that would have required him to go to his brother and get an animal, and who wants to do that, right? Because it's an acknowledgement that I don't have the right stuff myself to be right before God. And Cain was trying to do it his way. And he killed Abel. Noah and the animals. How many animals did Noah take on the ark? Hmm? Not, I mean, how many of each kind? Two, sort of. (laughs) Two or seven. He took seven of the animals that were necessary for a sacrifice. Because you'd hate to come off the ark and slaughter one of the animals that, eh. Depended what animal it was, right? Over and over again, we see the beginning of a sacrificial system. Abraham is instructed to to kill his son and present him as a sacrifice. And at the last moment, God intervenes and provides a substitute sacrifice. And then last year, we spent uh, the first part of the year talking about Moses and the nation of Israel leaving Egypt. Over and over and over and over again, they are presented with the need to produce a sacrifice. At some point, Pharaoh, in the midst of all of the uh, trials and tribulations, the plague, says, okay, you can go, just leave all your stuff back. And Moses says, no, we've got to take our animals because we have to present a sacrifice. And then the final plague which is the Passover, where God instructed Moses to instruct the people 
to take the blood and put it on the doorpost as a sacrifice, as an atonement, as a propitiation for sin. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, we see God preparing the people to acknowledge the fact that there is a substitute, a sacrifice that can pay the penalty for your sin. The biggest picture of this is the Day of Atonement. You remember the Day of Atonement? One day a year, the high priest brings a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, of the temple, and presents it on the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the one that Indiana Jones found. There is the seat of the Ark with the angels draped over it. And that seat was known as the mercy seat. The Greek word in the New Testament for mercy seat is propitiation that we see in the passage we just read. Why was God doing this? To show to the people how salvation was going to be brought to them so that we could look at the example and say, ah, the shedding of blood pays the penalty for sin. So, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. Remember in last week's lesson, the week before and the week before, God shows no partiality. Wait a minute, I'm a Jew. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing, but there is no distinction. God shows no partiality. There's only one way, and this is it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What does that mean? What is faith? Somebody want to try an answer? Believing without seeing. We have the best definition of it in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, why don't you just jump over there? I quote from this all the time because uh, verse 6 is one of my favorite verses. But starting in verse 1, we actually have a definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. <sighs> Clear as can be, right? Which verse? What verse? 11. I mean, 11 verse 1? Yeah. What do I say up there? Oh, 10. Oh, it's Hebrews 11. Excuse me. That's a typo. Nope, I'm just in the wrong passage. Ha <laughs> ha, there it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We live in a materialistic world. Materialistic as in the sense that we believe 
that the physical is what exists. If it cannot be demonstrated by the laws of science, it doesn't really exist. And we have tried to prove the existence of everything through purely mechanical means. I don't know how much time evolutionary psychologists have spent trying to prove the reality of love. What does it mean in a purely mechanical world? What does hope mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? What does faith mean? The answer is, in a pure material world, it doesn't mean much. We have reduced hope to wishful thinking. I hope that things work out well. I hope that my team wins. I hope that I get a raise. I hope, I hope, I hope. But that's not the biblical discussion of hope or faith. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. What do we hope for? Ultimately, we hope for salvation. Now, I will argue, and this is from last week's lesson, that we've taken that hope and we've corrupted it like we've corrupted everything else. But ultimately, what we all know we need is salvation, whatever that means to us. So if I'm hoping for salvation, what is the assurance that I'm going to get that which I hope for? Is it just wishful thinking? Faith, in the biblical sense, always has an object. And if you go back to that passage in Romans that we'll just go back to in just a moment, that object is Jesus Christ. Faith tells us that what God says he will do, he will do. It's not wishful thinking. And in one sense, it's exceptionally logical. If there is a God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, if that God has given us certain promises, what is there that could stop him from keeping those promises? Nothing. It's entirely logical, unless you want to put up a microscope and say, prove it's true, in which case you have no hope and you have no faith. You have your faith that you'll find something in that microscope that will give you salvation, but there's nothing there. Faith is the assurance, the assurance that we know who God is, we know that he is a keeper of promises, and that he has told us what we ought to do. The conviction of things not seen. If I showed you an object, and I said, do you believe that object exists? You would say, of course, because there it is. There it is right in front of me. But if I told you about an object that was not in this room, 
you'd go, hmm, do I believe Kyle? Well, most of the time he tells the truth. Well, sometimes he does. And your belief or disbelief in the existence of that object is a function of your trust in me. Once again, what is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ, God. So if he is the object of our faith, and he tells us that certain things are true, maybe they're going to be true. Pascal says that God gives us enough evidence so that it's not irrational to believe. But he doesn't give us so much evidence that it doesn't require faith. The rest of chapter 11, which is a fabulous chapter, is a discussion of individuals. And every one of them has the pattern, by faith, this person did this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, hidden for three months from his parents, because by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be part of Pharaoh's household. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, they did certain things. Why? Because God had made promises, and God keeps his promises. Now, did it all work out okay? Well, yes and no. Yes, All of the promises that God kept were true. Now, they got beaten, they got stoned, they got sawed in half. In the earthly sense, bad things happened to a lot of them. But in the eternal sense, and that is the world that faith works in, faith says there is life after this one. There is a need for salvation. Everything in this world says, you better enjoy it now because pretty soon you are just food for worms. And that's the end of the story. Back to Romans. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The object of the faith is Jesus Christ. This isn't faith in faith. It isn't, I just believe real hard, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and you make it to heaven. The faith is in the object of that faith, which is Jesus Christ. For all who believe. You do know that the word believe and the word faith are really the same word. One is a noun, one is a verb. We believe what we have faith in. Let's keep going. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the most quoted Bible verses that there is. It is interesting, at least I think it's interesting, that it's really kind of the middle of a sentence. And we take it and use it as the whole... uh, passage for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god fallen that's a nice king james word right (laughs) what does it mean 
to sin. Let's just get right down to the bottom line. What does it mean to sin? Huh? Doing what God tells us not to do or not doing what God tells us to do. To miss God's standard, to miss the mark. You know, if I put a target on that wall back there and pulled out my bow and arrow, first off, everybody on that side of the room would scatter. (laughs) But then I shot the arrow and I landed far away. I would have missed the mark. That is what the word sin actually means. There is a standard, a target, and I landed someplace else. Who set the standard? God did. Who keeps trying to redefine the standard? Man does. The illustration that is used by the prophets in the Old Testament is the idea of a plumb line. You've seen a plumb line. It's a weight on a string. And by the wonderful law of gravity, it's going to go straight down. So if I'm building a building and I'm putting up a wall, I put that line at the top, that weight below, and if the wall doesn't match the plumb line, which of the two is wrong? The wall because gravity's always going to work on this planet. God's standard is the righteousness of God. His holiness, his standard, and we fall short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The King James says, it is freely given. It just got dark in here. Maybe I'm not doing very well. (laughs) Justified by his grace. Justification is an exceptionally important word. It's simply this. I, as the accused party, appear before the judge. There is a judge sitting there, and I have been accused of breaking some law, and I go before the judge, and the judge is going to make judgment. He is going to judge me okay, or he's going to judge me condemned. Those are the two possible answers. It is interesting, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay years ago entitled God in the Dock. In an English courtroom, the dock is where the accused person sits. And his analogy was that modern man has turned this whole picture around. It is us judging God. We look at the scripture and say, well, if God can demonstrate to me that he's okay, I'll follow him. You ready for this? God doesn't give a flip about your opinion if it differs from his. Maybe that's not the right way of saying it. God is the judge 
and he is a righteous judge. And he is going to make judgment on us. Now here's the picture. We come before God to be declared or not righteous. What's God going to do? Option one. He looks at us. He looks at his righteousness. He looks at our sinfulness and says, out of here, you're toast. Would God be right for doing that? Yes. Option number two. We appear before God, and God loves us. I don't know why, but he loves us. So what he does is he says, well, here's my righteousness over here, but you know, I'm not going to look at it right now. In my love, I'm only going to look at you. (gasps) Come on in to heaven. But what has he done? He ceased to be a righteous and holy God. That's actually what verse 26 is all about. So that he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in how can he be a righteous judge who's judging righteously and at the same time overlook the fact that we've sinned? He can't. He can't. He can't. What we need is righteousness. So when we appear before the judge, God sees us as righteous. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. It isn't a myth. It isn't a pretend to not see. It is a righteous fulfillment of the law. Get to that in just a moment. And are justified by his grace as a gift. We'll have a longer discussion about the word gift when we get to what verse? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Tell me, I mean, this is, tell me, what do you have to do to earn a gift? Nothing. If you earned it, it's not a gift. It's something you earned. You just accept the gift. It is freely given by God to us because of grace, which is his unmerited favor bestowed upon us. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Lots of words in this passage. I actually toyed with the idea of just starting with a dictionary and spend half the lesson just looking up words. What is redemption? Okay, I've used the illustration in here before. I remember as a youngster, my mother collecting green stamps. And you would go to the redemption center and you would choose some overpriced gift 
that you could get with your cheap little stamps. But hey, it was cool, right? You redeemed them. A better illustration would be if you have been captured, kidnapped by a person, a group, an organization, and somebody pays to get you back. That is, you are redeemed. The price, the ransom, is paid. Huh. When we get to chapter 6, we'll have a long discussion about the fact that we are all slaves to sin. We're not just dabbling in it. We're good old-fashioned slaves to sin. In order to get a slave back, you had to redeem them. It used to be very common in war that you would kill a bunch of people and you would capture everybody else and you would either A, send them to the salt mines to work as slaves, or B, you'd write their next of kin and say, hey, I've got your best bud. Send me some cash and he's yours. You see this in the Crusades. You see this throughout the Middle Ages where people were put into captivity and a ransom was paid. What is the ransom that is paid for us? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember all those sacrifices in the Old Testament? They were pictures of the final sacrifice that would be made on our behalf. And are justified, we are declared righteous by his grace, by his unmerited favor toward us as a gift freely given to us through the redemption, the ransom that was paid by his blood, by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is salvation. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's that big word, propitiation. This is the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and presenting the blood on the mercy seat for us. But here's the cool part. Go read the book of Hebrews. Who is that high priest? Jesus Christ. Who is the sacrifice whose blood is presented? Jesus Christ. Who is the mercy seat upon which that blood is presented by the high priest in the Holy of Holies to provide payment for our sin? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ at the beginning. It's Jesus Christ in the middle. And it's Jesus Christ all the way to the end. God put forward Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice. You remember a good Jewish audience? He's writing to a Jewish and Gentile audience. Remember all those days of atonement? Every year you had to go back and present more blood because you sinned again and there had to be another sacrifice. Another, another, another. And the book of Hebrews says there was one final sacrifice. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What is faith? The assurance of things hoped for. What is the second part of it? It is the assurance that God has provided a way because God said he would. There is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. What do we do? We accept the gift that God has given us. Ephesians tells us, for by faith, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Not of works. Oh, wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Romans 3, keep going, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Huh. Why would you ask that question at this point of the story? I mean, throughout this whole book, we have questions, okay, where Paul is sitting there riding along and he goes, I know what you're thinking, and he'll ask your question. Why would he ask this question at this point? Because he knows the way we work. Okay, let's say that salvation is 99% God and 1% me. Okay, 99% God, 1% me. I guarantee you my 1% is better than your 1%. I had to work real hard for my 1%. You just loafed your way through to get your 1%. Your 1% barely cut it. And we would form denominations and religions based on who had the right 1%. And I would start bragging and I would start boasting that my 1% is better than your 1%. I'd have a whole denomination, and you wouldn't be invited. That's the way our minds think. I'm going to brag about what I've done. You want to brag about what you've done? Go back earlier in the chapter. There's none who does righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. No, 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 no. There's what you did. That's your contribution to your salvation. You messed it up. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? No. Yes. Yes. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Here it comes. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. You can take law to be the Ten Commandments brought down. You can take law to be... um, God's law written on the conscience of mankind. You can take the law to be some created list that we made up. Whatever it is, it's not going to justify you. Skipping back up to verse 26. No, back up to 25. We've made it halfway through it and then we skip down to boasting. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience... He has passed over former sins. What does that mean, passed over? Remember the illustration we had several weeks ago when we were talking about God's wrath? You commit a sin. 
the end result of you committing that sin is God's wrath poured out on you. But God in his mercy takes that wrath and he puts in a bucket over on the side. You sin again, there's another bucket. Occasionally, he'll take an eyedropper and he'll put some of those drops on your head just so you know you're not getting away with it. But in reality, the buckets are being stored away. Because if he dumped the bucket on you, well, it'll all be over. In his patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Whose righteousness? His righteousness. Your righteousness? No. Why? Your righteousness is is sitting over here in these buckets of wrath. To show his righteousness at this point in time, he overlooked certain sins, not overlooked as in there's no consequence, but he didn't dump that consequence on you at that point in time. Why? And here it is. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God, the righteous judge, sit there and look at his righteous nature and look at sinful man and declare him to be righteous while still being just? He does it because he's seeing the righteousness of Christ who paid the penalty for your sin that was the covering, the blood on the doorpost, that was the atonement, that was the propitiation for your sin. That's what he sees, because that's what you have. The righteousness of Christ has been given to you. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Last week's lesson ended. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Here we see how to be justified. It has to be done apart from the works of the law. We have to get to the point where we acknowledge to God, I can't do it. Because as long as we think we can do it, we're going to try to do it with our own list. I may be very creative in coming up with my list, but it's going to be my list. And by golly, I'm going to do it. Cain would not go to his brother Abel and ask him for a sacrifice. He was going to do it his way if it killed him. And it did. Wait a minute, didn't it kill Abel? Yeah, it did that too. But we're told in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, by faith, Abel presented a more acceptable sacrifice. One of them was saved and one of them wasn't. And the one that was murdered was the one that was saved. Huh. Apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who has justified the circumcised, that would be the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Question, how are Jews going to be saved? Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
We'll talk about that when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. How are Gentiles going to be saved? By faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no other plan. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you've got to be perfect? Don't think, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. Huh. You've got to imagine the normal Jewish person, i.e., not the Pharisees, hoping that Jesus would say, you know, all that stuff the Pharisees are telling you to do, yeah, forget about it. Go have a good time. You know, eat your ham and enjoy your... No. It's all there. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. When God provides grace to us through Jesus Christ... He is not saying, okay, all that stuff about the law, let's pretend it never happened. I know you can't keep the law. I know you can't keep the rules. Therefore, we'll just forget about it. You know, it's like the judge sitting there, the defendant comes up, and he says, you know, this law is too hard. Let's just pretend this law is not here, okay? You go on and have a good time. Is that what God did? Does faith delete, remove the law? No. It fulfills the law. What does the law say? Sin, penalty. Sin again, penalty. That's what the law requires. We sin, and the blood of Jesus Christ takes care of the penalty. We sin again, and the blood of Jesus Christ takes care of the penalty. That is, that is the gospel message. Now, if you're a good Jewish person listening to this, that half the church would have been in Rome, you're sitting there thinking, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Abraham do things that made him righteous? I mean, for a good Jewish audience, if it doesn't work for Abraham, it doesn't work. I mean... End of the story, right? Chapter 4, next week's lesson, is all about Abraham. What is the conclusion? There is no one righteous, no, not one. You know, we could just stop there and think about it for a long time. As we said last week, we're not saying that people can't do things that are good in the eyes of other human beings. We're not saying that people are as bad as they could be. They could always be worse. What we are saying is that by the plumb line of the righteousness of God, our wall is really crooked. And we have to acknowledge that. But there is another righteousness. It is from God. It is apart from the law. And it is by faith in all who will believe. God is going to save us in such a way that no one but he gets the glory. Keep that in mind because we're going to see that phrase over and over again. You see it here. You see it in Ephesians. God is going to save us in such a way 
that God is going to get all the glory. I was thinking this week of a song that I sang when I was in high school, and I, I couldn't find the song, but the interesting thing is I didn't realize that the words of the song are taken from a poem by John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. The law says, do this, do this, do this. The grace of God says, by faith, it's all been done for you. Everything you need, I, God, have given to you. And that is the good news. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you provided Christ as the sacrifice for our sin. I pray, Lord, that we by faith would live lives of faith that bring glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.